Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Novak Djokovic is still alive in the race to year-end number one. He does that by winning Paris, beating Denis Shapovalov in the final, Grigor Dimitrov in the semifinal, and Stefanos Tsitsipas in the quarterfinal. I won't go any further back than that, but with the exception of a very tough first set against Dimitrov, he looked great doing it. Unfortunately, he did not play Rafael Nadal in the final. I think I think we all would have liked to see that. Nadal pulls out of Paris with an abdominal strain. So, I will start uh, by addressing what probably everyone wants to hear about right now, and that is what is the scenario going into the Nitto ATP finals, which is in two weeks, not next week. Next week is the next-gen final. We'll talk about that. A little bit later in the show after I get done with Djokovic and Paris um, and Nadal's injury and then comment response at the end. First of all, it has been incredibly hard to find anyone who has actual distinct answers on what the scenario is for the ATP final. But but the best I can simplify it for you is um, Nadal is ahead 640 points right now. He, t- he t- took over after par- Paris as the world number one. A lot of people were confused. I mean, this is how the rankings work. Nadal did not play Paris last year, and Djokovic lost in the final. So even though Djokovic won Paris, Nadal still gained more points than Djokovic by uh, making the semifinal, and that's why he overtook uh, Novak as number one. But I know that that was inevitable before Paris, we even knew that was going to happen. Um, so that's that's how the uh, that's how the cookie crumbled. I'll use that cliche. That that sounds right. Um, in terms of how the points work out in the ATP Finals, if you win a round robin match, you get two hundred points. You play three round robin matches because it's two groups of four. If you win in the semifinals, you get four hundred points. And if you win in the final, you get 500 points. So that's a guaranteed 900 uh, if you win the entire thing. That's without the round-robin match wins. If you don't lose in the entire tournament, if you go the entire tournament without losing, you get uh, 1,500 points, which is very substantial. Um, So if you really think about this, and it gets a little bit complicated. Here's here's the, the simplest way to put it. If Nadal plays in London, it's going to be very hard for Djokovic to make up 640 points. He'll have to he'll have to do very well and Nadal will probably have to fail to make the semifinals. That's that's just how the numbers uh, kind of shake out and I can't get any more specific with that because honestly it makes my head hurt. Unfortunately, no one's been able to um, that that I've seen has been able to uh, put the information together in a succinct manner. Otherwise, I would share it with you. But that's the deal: six hundred forty points between them, two hundred points for a round robin win, um, and and so on. It's going to be difficult if Nadal plays. Start with Nadal's injury, and then we'll get into Djokovic. Uh, Nadal pulls out with an abdominal strain. Uh, before his semifinal match with Denis Shapovalov. He was taking serves that morning, 
and it was one of his last serves in the warm-up, and he felt something in his abs. It strained. Every time you hit a serve in tennis, your the uh, the muscles in your abdomen, in your core, are stretching and contracting. There's there's a lot of of uh, pressure on the abs when you serve. So this is a common injury, almost always sustained through serving and overheads. Uh, whenever you'll, you pull your abdomen or you tear your abdomen, that's like one to three months. But Nadal, it sounds like it was short of that. It sounds like he just strained his abdomen. The, the biggest issue with this injury is there's a very, very, very strong risk that if you play through it, it just gets worse because the muscle fibers are have already been kind of pulled apart a little bit and you can pull them apart further and you don't want them to tear. That's a disaster. So this is not a good injury. Uh, this is uh, my hunch and the draw comes out for London tomorrow and it Someone, uh, I forget who, which I could credit the journalist, but someone has reported that uh, Nadal will make his decision on if he will play the ATP Finals. He will make that decision tomorrow. So I'm going to risk saying this right now and, and sounding like an idiot, but I my guess is that Nadal does not play based on the severity of an abdominal strain. And... Based on on Nadal's per, uh, tendency to, or I mean, honestly, just his, it's just how smart and responsible he is about his body. He does not want to risk his status for Australia next year, and there will be no fiber in Nadal's body that says, "Oh, it's the off season, so if I get injured now, it's no big deal. I have plenty of time to come back." That's just. That's just not how to start your season. That that would set up Nadal to fail in 2020 because you take the offseason to work on things, to get healthy, but also it's your chance to, to actually hit the gym every day and do all of the injury prevention that uh, that maybe you don't have time to do as much over the course of the season. Now, that's n less so true for the big four, and they get to take weeks off all the time and and focus on injury prevention a little bit more than players who are grinding day in, day out on the lower levels of the tour. But it's still true that in the offseason, if, if you're injured in the offseason, you're, you're starting behind. And there's no way that Nadal is going to have the mentality that he's going to risk making his abs worse just because it's the end of the season. So my guess is that he doesn't play. If he does play, he's going to have a really good chance at finishing year-end number one and holding off Djokovic. Uh, but if he doesn't, Djokovic is going to have a chance. 640 points. So that means three round-robin wins um, and a semifinal win would do it. So if Djokovic made the final. Or uh, two round-robin wins and a semifinal win. It's semifinal. Would that do it? Uh, 400... Um, yeah, that would do it as well. So basically, if Djokovic made the final and Nadal didn't play, that would put him at year-end number one. So that's the deal. All right, let's get to Paris. That's your thumbnail. I liked it because of the flag in the background. I thought it uh, it was very aesthetic, That that shot. 
Um, so Djokovic beats Denis Shapovalov in the final in straight sets. This was absolutely a. I, I mean, look, I don't want to. I don't want to disrespect Shapo here at all, but God, I mean, this this was pretty much a walk in the park for Djokovic. The outcome never in question. He didn't even. Not only did he not face Deuce uh, break point in the first set. I just gave away what I'm going to say. Uh, he didn't face. He didn't even get to Deuce in the first set uh, on serve. Novak Djokovic. To be honest, he didn't have to play much on serve because that's how many returns Denis Shapovalov failed to put back in play. The the um, the number of free points Djokovic was winning here was was made it so that Novak really didn't have to sweat much in this match. He's not used to that. I mean, Djokovic is used to having to work pretty hard with, with his baseline game. So if you're not going to give yourself a chance against one of the most elite baseline players, the most elite baseline player in the world, well, you better get returns in play and, and at least test his abilities back there. Otherwise, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage. So that was Shapovalov's downfall here. But it was an interesting turn of events because coming into this match, you would have been saying the exact opposite about Denis Shapovalov. Because... Shapo winning a title, winning his first title last week, um, coming into this tournament, a changed man on return, doing what should have been pretty obvious to him that he needed to do, but finally shortening up on his returns and, and chipping them, especially on his backhand, because Shapovalov's backhand, it doesn't get much longer than that as far as strokes are concerned. Between his backswing and his racket drop and through contact and his long follow-through. I mean, it's a super long shot. And it makes the return of serve very unnatural for him. Federer's got a, a shorter... His technique is a little bit more compact and a little bit shorter on his one-handed backhand. So the return is a more natural shot for Roger Federer. Denis Shapovalov, um, I didn't mean to say Shapovalov, um, obviously Stan Wawrinka with head coach Magnus Norman made this adjustment in his career. Wawrinka also has a longer backhand and struggled on the return, so Norman had him chip the return and it was a lot better. Uh, quite frankly, it, it should not have taken this long for Shapovalov to figure this out. There's also a mindset issue, or there has been a mindset is issue with Shapovalov on the return, where not only is he taking full cuts at the ball, and this goes hand in hand, but he's just, he's not playing them safe, and he's not putting enough in play, he's not giving himself a chance. But, uh, these are the stats. In Paris, he was uh, chipping his backhand return quite a bit, and chipping his forehand return as well. A lot of people only focusing on the backhand, but really off both wings, Shapovalov um, was doing quite a nice job of chipping his returns, getting them back in play, and giving himself a chance to use his power from the back of the court and use his dazzling shot making. But this match, he he just couldn't get it done in in so many respects, in so many facets, and I don't know if the if the moment was too big, but even when Shapovalov was chipping his returns, he he seemed to have no feel for it. He was he was missing it even when it was right there. 
Uh, a lot of the times he was stretched out on the backhand, but still he just was not putting it back in play. And then oftentimes I felt I feel like he got frustrated and went back to what he was used to and what he was doing before and taking big cuts at the ball. So uh, I'll go back and uh, here's here's his first break point at 30-40. And he takes a cut at this backhand return and catches it late. So it goes wide. And that's exactly what he tried to cut out of his game. That's exactly what he wasn't doing coming into this match. Especially on a fast court, everyone knows that if you serve to Shapovalov's backhand, you're going to get a lot of misses. Everyone on tour has known that. And finally, he started to cut that out. But in this match, um, it was kind of back to the, to the same old. By the way... On the very next point, Djokovic hits a serve out wide on the deuce side, and Shapovalov hits over it again and misses the next return. He missed return after return after return in this match. And I'll get to the positive on Denis Shapovalov. It was an incredible week. Uh, I also want to point out that Djokovic uh, was making it very hard on Denis. Here's Djokovic's first serve placement in the first set. You can see um, a surprising number, especially on the deuce side, to Shapovalov's forehand. I think he went more to the backhand in the second set. That was my observation. I don't have stats on it. But Djokovic doing a great job of keeping his serve out of the middle of the box. He was keeping Shapovalov stretched out. And both Dennis and Novak mentioned... <laughs> Novak said, I was hitting my spots really well. And Dennis said he was hitting his spots really well. So Hawkeye aside, stats aside, both players, neither of them saw that graphic. And both of them alluded to, to Djokovic's ability to hit his spots on his serve. Now, it, it just didn't look good because, again, I mean, you see only two aces in the first set for, for Djokovic. You know, it's not like – it wasn't the kind of serving performance where it was like, oh, Dennis – Chapo's out there and it looks like he can't do anything. He got his racket on a lot and it he got his strings on plenty and it just wasn't getting it wasn't going back in play. The two games that Djokovic broke were error-filled games from Shapovalov. Uh Djokovic's return really found uh he found great rhythm on that shot great timing on that shot in the latter half of this week and again i think it was an area where shapovalov felt very rushed first forehand after the serve is the most important shot for any offensive player if you're shapovalov you're an offensive player you have a big serve you have a big forehand so that first forehand is very important but djokovic is teeing up the return on such a consistent basis that Shapovalov is on his back foot on that first forehand and making a lot of errors on that first forehand. Now here's an example at 3-all that I want to show you guys for, for a couple reasons. One, it's a big point. It's a big error. Uh, this game at 3-all, Shapovalov serving. But also it shows you that Djokovic is such a good returner that Shapovalov can hit his spots and Djokovic is still getting it to come back. I mean, we all know how how good a returner Novak Djokovic is, but let's just examine this um, in slow motion. 
So I pause it here where Djokovic lands on his uh, on his split step. You see how far the ball is. I mean, this is how incredible it is that these pros are able to r return serve, which is really, it, when it comes down to it, the hardest shot in tennis, most high-difficulty shot in tennis is the return of serve. Uh, because of the reaction time, the the athleticism, and the coordination required, and just the, the sheer ability to absorb the pace takes a tremendous amount of, of touch and, and racket skills. So all those things combined, I think it's the hardest shot in tennis. And it's, uh, it's one of the areas where Djokovic really just jumps off the court. So the main thing I want to point out here is how Djokovic is able to keep both hands on the racket. And it's not that Djokovic always keeps both hands on the racket, but this is a serve from Shapovalov. When I watch this, I'm thinking almost every righty in men's tennis tries to throw out throw out their their right arm and and give it give it a, a a hack kind of a defensive slice try to float it back um the ability to take a hard serve well placed as a righty and keep two hands on the return is is something else here and what i want to really point out is how djokovic launches himself at the ball as if he's like a soccer goalie. And that's really what Djokovic reminds me of when he returns serve. He reminds me of a goalie in football, if you live anywhere else besides the United States or where I live, soccer. And if you watch a goalie, when there's a penalty kick, they also split step. They split step. I don't know if it's called split stepping. It's probably called something else. But they split step and then they explode to either direction. But the idea is the same. You center your balance. That way you're just as prepared to go either way. And Djokovic um, shifts his weight to his left leg, and then with all his might and all his flexibility, lunges to his left and basically throws his upper body in the direction of the ball, which... Gets, makes him close enough to keep two hands on the racket. The reason most people here would take a handoff is because you get more reach, right? As soon as I, if you see my, my right arm here, as soon as I put my, my left arm into it, I can't really demonstrate it. Uh, as soon as I try to hold on, I actually have less reach as soon as I keep my left hand on it as a righty. But Djokovic's uh, reactions, his athleticism, and, and just his technique, which is such a unique technique, uh, enables him to launch himself at the ball here. And this is the, this is the best frame because it's at contact. And you see Djokovic's head is two feet in front of his toes. Think about how a soccer goalie dives at the ball. This is how it would be. He leaves his feet behind because there's no time to move your feet. At the ball, there's only time to really launch your upper body at the ball. I don't think many players look like this and and can make this return, but Djokovic does it. He gets it in play. This is the frame afterwards. You can see the momentum that Djokovic generated. It it brings him. Uh, it, it takes him a long way, and you can just see how much force Djokovic kind of threw himself with based on how he lands here.
Shapovalov has a forehand. Djokovic is ready to defend. And Shapo hits the tape. You can see the ball hit the tape. Djokovic ready to uh, pursue that and try to make a pass. Shapovalov, based on his, his technique, was, uh, was coming in on this, uh, on this forehand. That was a game, though. Shapovalov made three forehand errors. So that was the third point in a row where he made a forehand error. Uh, just not forcing Djokovic to do much. So it was comfortable service games for Djokovic due to Shapo's return. And it was uh, just a couple of games where Shapovalov had error-ridden games that allowed Djokovic to get the breaks of serve that he needed. It's a good week for Shapovalov. And uh, there's a comment on it a little bit later on that uh, where um, I'll get to that and talk about Shapovalov. Before we get to comments... Let's take a look at the next-gen final, Group A and Group B. The top two seeds are Alex Dimonor and Francis Tiafo. Um, Dimonor has had a, a breakout year here in 2019. Indoor hardcourt's a really good surface for him, and he is the favorite coming in. Tiafo has maybe had... A bit of a, a flat year. He didn't seem to get. He didn't seem to really make much of a leap this year, Francis Tiafo. But uh, he's played some decent tennis as of late. Uh, next up in Group A, Casper Ruud. Good physicality. Good off the ground. Really good clay court player. Miamir Kecmanovic. He's a player who likes some uh, faster courts, so I'll be looking out for him. And then um, Alejandro. Uh, what is it? D Davidovich Fokina? Davidinovich? Um, him I haven't seen much of. I know I know we had a, a big run at some point in the clay court season. But Hugo Umber, the Frenchman in Group B. Michael Yammer. Uh, am I pronouncing that one right? I'm not really sure. I've seen him play. But... Um, Really, really, you know, what jumps out off to me, what jumps out to me is his his athleticism, but obviously haven't seen him um, too much. And then Yannick Sinner, who's probably the, the person who we'll have our eyes on more than anyone in this tournament is Sinner because there's there's a lot of hype. He's around um, around the Italian. He's 17 years old. Seems to be really even off of both sides. He's an aggressive baseliner, very talented ball striker from what I've seen. But this is what this tournament is all about. It's so we can learn more about, about a lot of these players, especially at the bottom of both groups. It's also about experimentation with the future of the sport. Um, and I had it up. Let me just go real quick to some of the new... Um, where is it? Did I lose it? I had it pulled up, and I I was going to look at it. I was going to look at all of the innovations that they intend to, to use. Here we are. Okay. Let's go through this. First of four games, that's nothing new. Shorter warm-up, shot clock, one medical timeout. Uh, player coaching, they had that last year. It's not on-court coaching. It's player coaching. I've, I've, uh, I've made videos on that. I'm not a fan of player coaching, but I'm fine with it for this event. You, you try things, that's fine. 
towel rack, so uh, ball kids do not have to handle towels, sure. Free movement policy is applied to the crowd except behind the baseline. So the fans can move freely in and out of the stadium during matches as long as they're not behind the baseline. Don't mind that. Don't really care about that. Uh, the most interesting here thing here is video review. Video review is available to further analyze judgment calls from the chair umpire, including the following incidents. Double bounces, foul shots, such as a double hit or a carry. Touches when the ball might skim a racket or clothing. Um, an invasion? Invasion? I don't know what invasion is. Uh, when the player or anything he's wearing makes contact with the opponent's side of the court while the ball is in play. There you go. That's invasion in tennis. I've never heard of invasion. Uh, so players are able to challenge these calls. Yeah, this is good. I like that. Now that should probably be implemented on the tour. Because there's no reason that we use Hawkeye in a challenge system for in and out, but on double bounces, which really are, are often harder to make than a lines call that, that we don't have video review for that. There's no reason for that. So I, I like video review. I'm glad to see that. And that's something that I hope is implemented. Predictions for next gen finals. Again, uh, my, my familiarity with uh, these players are, are only growing, but I would say Demonor comes out of group a let's say he's in the final you know i also think sinner's the real deal so let me go with a prediction of a sinner demonor final and demonor comes out on top didn't put you know i can't put too much thought into this but you probably want a prediction so there it is all right, let us go to the questions. Same format as always. Top three liked comments get, get read. After that, I choose. TVS23 asks, Muhammad Ali once said that to be the greatest, you must beat your greatest rivals. I'm not going to try and spark a war and ask about Djokovic beating Nadal and Fed head-to-head, -head, but I will ask you, do you think the head-to-head -head stat is wrongfully overlooked? And is it unfair when people diminish someone's head-to-head -head by bringing in surfaces and age as an excuse? I think it is a very important stat personally because it proves how someone performs against their biggest threats. Yeah, head-to-head -head is really important. The biggest thing I disagree with about this comment is, um, or it's not that I disagree, it's that I don't think it's unfair to bring surfaces and age into head-to-head -head records. I think to ignore surfaces and age, ignore the ingredients that make up a head-to-head -head record when it comes to play styles. How could you tell the history of Federer and Nadal without understanding the fact that court speed has more often times than not determined the outcome of their rivalry? To ignore that just would be ignoring how things really played out in real time. I also think age is important. And while I think head-to-head -head is important, you also have to look at players' performances uh, against the rest of the field. And head-to-head -head is not a be-all, end-all stat. 
There are some odd ones. Rafael Nadal couldn't beat Nikolai Davidenko for his life. Couldn't do it. Just one very famous example of an odd head-to-head that does not characterize Rafael Nadal's career. And Davidenko is nowhere near the player that Nadal is. But Nadal had a lot of trouble with Davidenko, probably because Davidenko was so good at taking his backhand early on the rise. Uh, which is the same reason why Nadal's head-to-head with Djokovic on any fast court is challenging. So, head-to-head is very important. Djokovic comes out looking the best when you look at head-to-head, although it's really, really close with Nadal. Um, Well, actually, is that true? Trying to think. Nadal might come out looking better, actually. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. Um, if you just look at head-to-heads with with big three and and really delve into that deeply, because I haven't done it. Don't have much interest in doing it at the moment either. Okay. GTS. Which of the big three is the most gifted athletically. You know, one more thought that just popped into my head because the the one thing that I didn't address about that was was age. Federer Federer is indeed at a disadvantage when it comes to just head to head. That stat in a vacuum because of how many great years in Roger Federer's career was spent without Novak Djokovic and um now, Nadal was there, and Federer was mostly you know, beating Nadal on quicker surfaces and losing to him on slower surfaces. But just, just to, you know, there's no way that you can't factor in Federer and Djokovic's head-to-head without thinking about how many years Federer was at the peak of his abilities without Novak Djokovic. So y- you have to understand the context and weigh the statistics. That's all you can do. There will be no... There will be no easy way to measure these these uh, players' careers against each other. GTS, which of the big three is the most gifted athletically? By athletically, I mean all aspects of athleticism in tennis, like speed, stamina, flexibility, sliding, positioning, balance, footwork, movement, court coverage, ability to change direction, reflexes, agility, proneness to injury. Would love to hear your thoughts on this, as Roger, Novak, and Rafa are hands down the best three movers in the history of tennis. I think Bjorn Borg might have something to say, but you're probably right, and especially um, with uh, modern medicine being taken into account. Um, yeah. Michael Chang might have something to say as well. Um I love this question. Let me let me keep this uh, pretty simple. To me, here's athleticism. Strength is one category. Speed is one category. Quickness is another. So quickness is, you know, short short movements, changing of direction. Um, speed is sprinting speed. So strength, speed, quickness. Um, and, uh, footwork. And then I believe the fifth, oh, is stamina, endurance, lung capacity. First of all, I want to say that tennis is a sport with some of the most 
balanced. If you look at those five factors of athleticism, tennis is so balanced. You need all five. You really do. In my opinion, Rafa Nadal in his prime had the best combination of all five. And I think in the strength category, he really separated himself from Federer and Djokovic, who were excellent in all the other categories. But but Nadal really had a pretty hefty advantage um, over them in those two categories. Um, endurance, and I'm not going to go through you know each one by each one. Now, what I'll say about Djokovic is that strength is probably the least important of all the categories in terms of practical tennis uh, importance. And while it's very important, and so many players benefit from their strength, Djokovic is probably the best in a lot of the most important categories here. Endurance, it's tough between Djokovic and Nadal. But when it comes to endurance and quickness and speed, I think Djokovic might have Nadal edged. And when it comes to who covered the court better in their prime, it, it, on clay it was probably Nadal, but on other surfaces it was probably Djokovic, so it's pretty tough. In, in his prime, I really do think Nadal was the greatest athlete in the world. If you just look at those... Uh, those three categories, uh, five, five categories. I think Nadal was a better athlete than anyone in the world, is my honest opinion. Ryan Locke, would Rafa have withdrawn from Paris Masters if the event was on clay, given that he hasn't withdrawn or missed a clay Masters event since 2009? It wasn't a lower body injury, right? So it was an abdominal strain, which means theoretically it couldn't have happened on, it could have happened on clay, but it didn't. So I don't know. Don't, I, I don't have much for that question, certainly. Um, Certainly there's – coincidentally, he's never hurt his arm or his abs or his shoulder on clay. But it's no coincidence that he hasn't hurt his knees on clay and he has on hard court because uh, clay is a lot easier on, on the legs, the feet, etc. And Terry and Terry wants to know if Federer will break Connor's 109 titles. I, I think he will. I think he's got it. Sean O'Kerbehet. Kerbel, um wants to know if Djokovic would lose in the group stage if it meant that he could play Nadal in the semifinal. So would Djokovic purposely lose to play Nadal in the semifinal? That way he can stop Nadal from becoming year-end uh, year number one. My answer to that is no. Every tennis match has a crowd, a paying crowd, he respect he probably respects the sport too much to do such a thing. Uh, people, I mean, I don't think he cares about betters, but th there's a certain integrity of of a match that cannot be compromised, and I don't think Djokovic would compromise it. So I think he'd try to win. Also, inner competitiveness. That's another thing. These are rivals. Every time you step out onto the court, you have a challenge that hopefully you're excited about. Uh, excited about conquering that challenge, and I don't think Djokovic could uh, could give anything but his best. Last one, Mark Marini. Do you feel Dimitrov has finally got his mentality right? I thought he played some great high-quality tennis against Djokovic and looked really good. Yeah, I've, I have not seen that intensity out of Dimitrov all year. And I want to make this point against Dimit about Dimitrov. Then I'll talk about Shapovalov real quick, and then I will... Um, then I will 
end it. The intensity that Dimitrov played with this week, the intensity and the confidence, uh, that was next level. I, I, I have not seen that from him in quite a long time. And I think his intensity is very important because contrary to popular belief, he is not Roger Federer in the respect that he does not have simple ways to finish points, quick ways to finish points. What Grigor Dimitrov is, is a great athlete and an extremely well-rounded player with very few holes in his game. What he does not have is a really big weapon to fall back on and finish points. So he must have the mentality of a grinder, the mentality of someone who never quits and plays every point as hard as he can and is expected to put himself through some physical suffering and is expected to not ever really lose focus and to refuse to make errors. That's the kind of mentality Dimitrov needs to implement given his skill set. And he can be successful if he does that. But he needs to play with the kind of intensity that he did in Paris this week. And he will be very successful if he's able to do that. Uh, he can he can come back to, uh, to his winning ways. Um, okay, last one is not a comment, but I promised I'd just quickly talk about what Shapovalov did well this week. I talked about the return, and that is a huge development for Shapovalov. Um, what I'd like to see him do now is experiment with moving back on the return, especially the second serve return. Give himself more time. Um, and I think that might be a, a way that he can take the next step up. But on a slow... Now, I think Paris was playing medium, medium quick. But I think Shapovalov has been much more fit all year, which has made him uh, much better in the corners, much better on the run. And at the end of the day, this is a guy who can play similar similar tennis to um, Stan Wawrinka or Dominic Thiem in the respect that they can hit a winner, that Shapovalov can hit a winner from anywhere on the court at any point. His forehand is a very, very special shot. It's not as consistent as, at this stage in his career, Dominic Thiem's forehand. Um... It's probably bigger than Stan Wawrinka's forehand if I'm going to critique my own comparison here. But that's a very special shot, his forehand. His backhand can be can be pretty special at times as well. But it's it's relentless offense from anywhere, at the po- uh, anywhere in the court at any time. Regardless of, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to find a safe area against Denis Shapovalov. He can hurt you at any, at any point. And... When the court – now, he's not good on clay because he doesn't move well on clay. But when you get a hard court, which he moves better on, and when when he has time to load up his power and he gets hot and he starts feeling himself and he gets confident, it is very difficult to deal with. His first serve percentage has is becoming higher. He needs that. His second serve is getting better, and he's putting more returns in play. That's why he was such a force to be reckoned with this week. All right, that does it for me on Monday Match Analysis. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.